Welcome to the Hemang Pulse. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I host the Hemang Pulse, the podcast focused entirely on all things hematology. Keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology by listening to the Hemang Pulse. And today's podcast is about cost effectiveness. A paper came in the Journal of Clinical Oncology discussing the cost effectiveness of treating large cell lymphoma, whether when you treat in the frontline setting using polituzumab uh, based on the Polarix trial or second line therapy when you use CAR T or autologous transplant. I found it intriguing because that paper demonstrated that the treatment was not cost effective, contrary to a paper that was published in Blood several weeks ago, where I interviewed the authors, which showed that it is cost effective. So what do we do on the Hemang Pulse? We invite the authors to let us know about the methodology, the paper, why did it show what it showed, and what are the implications of these findings on patients, on payers, on public health policy. Before we get started, uh, Abby, I'll start with you, maybe just a little bit of an introduction about you in general, what you do, where you work, and uh, what got you interested in hematology uh, in general? Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. Uh, so I'm Abby, I'm a hematologist, just started about eight months ago as a uh, clinician investigator at Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto. What do I do? I treat lymphomas with a focus on CLL currently. And uh, at our center, we also do autologous transplants and CAR-T for our patients with lymphoma. And uh, in terms of why hematology, I think it's you know such a fascinating field. It has an older patient population. I find these patients always have a very interesting life story and history to get to know them kind of on a personal level. And then lymphomas are very satisfying because they're very treatable. Um, they have the mix of palliative care, but also very aggressive and, and curable therapies. So there's that whole spectrum of treatment. And I think in this most recent era, you know, as our paper discusses as well, there's all these exciting new therapies that are coming out, including immunotherapies, which are becoming very important in lymphoma. You know, Abby, I hate to break the news to you. You said you've been doing this for eight months um, and you started with Journal of Clinical Oncology. So uh, uh, I hope I'm not the first person to tell you, probably not all your papers will be in the JCO. <laughs> Anka, the same. Uh, tell us a little bit about you and, and uh, what interested you in, in hematology and lymphoma and, and where you work and practice. Uh, yeah, so thank you as well for for having us. I have a very similar story to Abby. I'm just a, a few years uh, ahead of uh, of her, so I uh, um, I'm a lymphoma and still treat a little bit of myeloma as well at Princess Margaret in Toronto. I've been on faculty for about ten years, um, and I'm a clinician investigator, as mentioned, treating uh, lymphoma. Uh, and uh, again, in our in our group, we do the auto transplants and the CAR T therapy for for patients uh, with these diseases. And I guess. Um, I think hematology was always found it. Uh, I, I liked the. Uh, I found it a bit of an objective uh, science. So, you know, you had blood blood counts and and things to look at for your bread and butter. Um, and I guess as I went through training, I I also enjoyed um, uh, that relationship with patients and um, and treating them both with a curative curative intent, so as more palliative. And I really. 
now I've fallen into this uh, or this position where I really like taking patients from from the beginning to the end, um, and I like being able to and to work in a place we have a we do a lot of clinical trials and uh, try to have access to to new therapies. So being able to kind of offer patients these, but hopefully with the lens of um, objectivity and evidence-based because uh, of the system we work in, which is a publicly funded system, but some restrictions on us. So we often have to think about, you know, the value for money of drugs that we offer while we have available. That, that's that's really a good segue into what we are going to talk about, which is your paper. So, um, Abby, set the stage for us as to, A, um, you know, I don't want to give away the results or the methods yet. I just want to set the stage as to why you even decided to perform this investigation. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I think when we first started um, this idea at the end of uh, 2020, 21. Um, it was a very exciting time because, you know, as you know, RCHOP and, and Transplant have been the standard of care for patients for so many years. And for three um, positive trials to be published or presented at the same time was a very unique time in hematology um, with the Polarix trial in the frontline setting and then the Zuma 7 and Transform trials in the second line setting, uh, employing CAR T therapy. Um, and, you know, in thinking about implementing both of these therapies, this was sort of a unique way to think about cost effectiveness because the implementation of one therapy may have cost effectiveness implications on the other. Um, and so we undertook this cost effectiveness analysis where we wanted to look at the implementation of um, each of the interventional arms of the clinical trials alone um, or together and compare those to the current standard of care to determine if um, they were A, more effective, um, B, more costly, and then C, um, what would their cost effectiveness was. So, so Anka, you wanted to look at the, because I mean, the Polarix trial was looking at polatuzumab, um, very different than CAR-T. Um, were you trying to look at the cost effectiveness of polatuzumab in the frontline setting? Or were you trying to look at the second line? So like what, which, what, what, what were you, which line were you looking at? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And I think, um, I guess we were trying to look at, at strategies uh, of treat, treating patients. And having done a few of these over the years, I've had, had interest in cost effectiveness analysis. I think one of the, I guess, the advantages or, or the reason to do it is often you know, uh, trials or data we have might just look at one treatment in isolation and would might have limited follow-up, right? A couple of years. And and beyond that, you know, it's uh, harder to extrapolate what's going to happen to patients. And I think why I've been interested in this methodology is it allows you to kind of put together what the lifetime of that patient might look like. And when you put in the probabilities of what might happen to patients with modeling, you have the ability to to let's say simulate what might happen to 10,000 10, patients if they were to go through these different strategies. So I guess our attempt was more to say, um, you know, what would be the different uh, strategies of treatments that patients could go through, you know, start with polar RCHIP, you go into remission and you're cured or you relapse and then you need second line uh, treatment. Is it earlier than a year, you might get CAR-T. Is it more than a year, we still might do transplant and then kind of, do permutations of that to see what the different strategies could look like, what would be the outcomes of those patients, again, modeling different data outputs that we have, and what would be the costs associated with that. So again, it's I guess it's a way to think of 
of it not as treatments in isolation or drugs in isolation, but a treatment, uh, yeah, treatment approach for a patient through their lifetime. Almost like a decision tree. But exactly. So do you do that? Um, so do you take, um, do you do a model and you're going to say, I'm going to assume a patient gets art chop and I'm going to model what happens. And then I'm going to take a patient that might get polar art chip. And then I'm going to model that. And then you compare uh, based on that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, we would model uh, their lifetime when, you know, our, our exact model was taking a newly diagnosed patient with intermediate to high risk DLVCL, so a IPI score of two to five. Um, and as Dr. Prika said, modeling the strategies of starting with polar R-chip versus R-chop. Um, and then among those patients who relapsed, then again, stratifying them between second line CAR-T versus autologous transplant in the setting of early relapse um, and looking at that through the lifetime. Okay, so let's let's take a patient. Let's just do an example. Let's take an example of how you model this. So there's a patient who received polar archip. Then what do you like? Do you estimate um, based on the survival data, progression-free survival that they either because they're either going to be in remission or they're going to relapse. So how do you like? I don't know. Explain <laughs> it to me. I know nothing about lymphoma. Assume <laughs> I know nothing about lymphoma. <laughs> So I guess similar to a lot of cost-effectiveness models, um, nowadays we used a, a Markov model, which is um, a state transition model. So every patient um, had a monthly chance of existing in a certain state, um, and the state could either be the state of um, being on treatment, of being in remission, of being in relapse, um, or, be, or, or, or dying. Um, and so similar to the uh, curves you employ, that you see in the trial outputs, um, patients had really the exact same chance of progressing that we would expect to see based on the trial outputs. Um, and based on, you know, in patients who were in remission, that's that's great. They had a chance of dying, you know, very similar to the population with a small multiplier to that. Um, in patients who relapsed, they then moved on to an, another treatment strategy, which would model the trial output of, of second line treatment. That's very helpful. I guess, Thank you. It's a bit like, I guess, all of us as we live through our lives every month, we have a you know particular chance of, I guess, randomly dying and being <laughs> struck by lightning or things happening to us. So I guess what, and it is, a, it's a decision tree to a certain extent, but it, this methodology allows you to kind of constantly look at uh, each patient's chance of remaining in a particular state each month. And and the probability of that you get usually from, from study data. So when you have a randomized clinical trial, you can use that randomized data. Uh, but then you might imagine that if we, uh, I mean, in this case, we happen to have uh, fairly good data for, for the different states, but um, a lot, let's say you might have uh, some new treatments in, a, in, a, in lymphoma. And then you have this new trial that compares to to new strategies, but you don't might not know exactly what's going to happen to the patient beyond the two or three years. But you might have some other published data, you know, cohort data that tells you, like, you know, another example of a cost effectiveness we've done is Hodgkin lymphoma, where you know we care about long term effects of patients. So you're not really going to get that from a, a trial with three or four year follow up, but you have really good published data from other cohorts. So you can integrate all of that into these models to allow you to estimate probabilities of things uh, happening to patients as they cycle through each one. 
But Anke, how do you get the the cost data? Uh, because as part of the, you've got the efficacy data, and I get that totally because you uh, you know you can do the curves and all these things. Tell me about the cost. How do you get the cost? Yeah, so that's a very good question, and um, and uh, th there's differences between Canadian uh, data and, and American data, and part of our impetus. Um, or our attempt here was we have uh, lots of experience with doing Canadian cost effectiveness, but we were particularly interested in um, in looking at both because I think we thought it would be topical for 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 readers of uh, of these um, type of uh, of this type of analysis with that's so uh, timely. Uh, so um, so there are fairly um, established ways of getting some costs. So things like, in, I'll start with Canada in terms of getting, you know, cost of drugs, costs of physician visits, costs of hospitalizations. There are uh, resources that publish um, kind of uh, set costs that have been gathered through different uh, methodologies. Um, and there are similar um uh, similar methodologies in in the U.S. Um, and a lot of and you know there's different ways or things that are valid or validated. Um, people use a lot of Medicare or Medicaid costs. Um, there are kind of published costs for chemotherapy, but it is it was a little bit more a little bit more challenging because I think there is a little quite a bit more variability in the U.S. in terms of how much uh, things cost in terms of what the markup is on um on drugs or or uh, uh resources used and also maybe what an insurer might might pay um and what we found was that although the things like like polar archip you know the costs of that are largely driven by the cost of the drug so it's a little bit easier to not have a lot of uncertainty around it but both in Canada and the US there's a lot of uncertainty around what the cost of looking after CAR-T patients really is. So it's not just the cost of the drug, but all the things that go with, you know, having them admitted for th sometimes two weeks, three weeks, all the things going to the ICU, all that. And we're trying to starting to get more and more data um, from studies, but but a lot of it is not necessarily very uh, set. So uh, so that's where some of the uncertainty sometimes comes around costs is where you might, you might not have um, uh, sort of very certain uh, costs for some, especially a new therapy like CAR T therapy. Is the CAR T, Anka, like you know, the the price is fixed? Like in other words, it, it, you know, whether you whichever CAR T you, if you get CAR T and I get CAR T, the price is the same, right? I mean, so, sorry. So is your question whether you get it like if you're in California versus Florida and you get Axis like Yescarta, is it the same cost or? Um, I'm trying to think. Like let's say, Mr. Smith. Um, is in certain area in Canada and gets mm. Yescarta, and Mrs. Smith in a different part in Canada, and she yes. gets and she gets Yescarta. They get the same. It's yes, same. yes, oh, exactly, okay. exactly. Got so it. in Canada, the price is fixed. What's interesting in our system, though, is we have a very similar system to Nice, in, or a little bit to Nice in the UK, where we have a national body that evaluates drugs for um, for funding uh, recommendations. So we have Health Canada, which is similar to the FDA, that says you know the 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 product is safe and efficacious and people can have it, but then it gets evaluated by a by a, um, a body similar to Nice about and that looks at efficacy and cost effectiveness. Uh -huh. And then if they make a positive recommendation different than the UK, 
it goes to a confidential negotiation process uh, that's a national process. So the challenge is sometimes, and also in doing these, is that although uh, we know what the list price is, we actually never find out what the negotiated confidential price is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so we never know. We think we're getting a discount on, on all these drugs, but we don't know how much. Yeah. So... Abby, what did you find out? I mean, you 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 sought to do this. Uh, take us through the results and the findings. Yes, yeah. So we, you know, as expected, um, based on the trials having uh, positive findings in terms of progression-free survival, we similarly found um, incremental small improvements in uh, what we call life years, which is how long a, a patient would be expected to live and quality adjusted life years or the um, adjustment for, you know, um, no one lives a perfect life or they would rate it 100% at all times. Um, and so we found that, you know, adding CAR-T to standard of care, a second line CAR-T to standard of care improved these, adding polituzumab to standard of care improved these, and adding both polituzumab, R-CHIP, and second line CAR-T also improved um, life years and quality adjusted life years over the standard of care. Um, but as expected, this came with a cost um, and quite a significant cost at that. And um, based on the fact that there were really only small incremental improvements in life years and quality adjusted life years, uh, we found that the ICER, which is the difference in cost between two strategies uh, divided by the difference in quality adjusted life years between both strategies, um, ended up being quite high. On your previous episode, you had discussed willingness to pay and some of the limitations around um, what the right willingness to pay is. With that being said, people are typically using $150,000 per quality as a reasonable amount to pay for an for one extra quality adjusted life year. Um, and unfortunately, for, for all of these novel strategies, we found that the ICER exceeded that amount. Um, so it was kind of, you know, in the three hundred dollars to $500,000 range per quality. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, ICER, ICER is the, like you said, it's the difference in terms of the cost. Uh, I think it's divided by the difference in terms of uh, outcome almost, right? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, I'd like you to reflect on that because um, whenever we talk outcomes, it's an easy thing when you're talking overall survival, I think, because, you know, you're comparing years to years, hopefully. Progression-free survival is a tough one. I struggle with this personally because the Polarix, to my knowledge, has not shown overall survival benefit yet. Uh, it may, it may not. So how do you like, do you, when you're looking at the different with Polarix as an example, how do you factor that in? Is there a way to look at PFS? You just look at months versus months and that's it? I, I completely agree that, um, you know, the Polarix trial showed a 6.5% difference in progression-free survival at two years without a difference in overall survival. And, you know, we always have to ask ourselves, um, you know, of course, survival being the ultimate outcome, um, will that progression-free survival eventually translate into an overall survival benefit? Um, and so for us in our model, we model progression-free survival, we model events of progression, which eventually leads to events of death as patients relapse and go through subsequent therapies. 
Um, and so when we looked at our life years from our model, which is, you know, the survival of a patient through their lifetime, um, we actually found that the 95% confidence intervals of all of the strategies overlapped, as you would expect in these trials where no survival benefit has been demonstrated. Um, interestingly, one of our reviewers um, suggested to us to, to add a sensitivity analysis that we did where we said, okay, what is what about the ultimate you know, outcome where we say, let's look at the very end of the 95% confidence interval. What is the best outcome that the trial could show? Um, because of course we have the point estimate of hazard ratio, for example, in polarics of 0.73 as a PFS. The best outcome would be the end of the 95% confidence interval with a hazard ratio of 0.57. Um, so what if the trial was the ultimate best and did the best that we would expect from the confidence interval of the trial, um, which translates to maximizing the overall survival to 4.4%. Um, and interestingly, we found even with that, that um, the strategy was still not cost effective in the United States. Oh. Yeah, I want to talk about the United States because... I just a little bit selfish about the, the U.S. You know, uh, and I'd, Anka, I'd like you to reflect on this because we talk about price and cost. I haven't surveyed all patients, obviously, but I think a lot of patients think of the cost is what their out-of-pocket cost. You know, in other words, if you tell a patient that this regimen is costing $5,000 and you're going to pay $50 out-of-pocket, you know, you're dealing with cancer, you're getting treatment, you're probably not thinking on a societal level at that point, I would think. Don't know, but I presume you have enough on your plate that you're saying, I I'll gladly pay $50. I'm happy that my insurance paid the uh, extra, but somebody is paying, obviously. It just was not the patient that day, somebody else, premiums and other factors. Right. How do you take your findings and try to make sense out of them in a different healthcare system, such as the U.S., for example. Well, that's a very yeah, that's a very thoughtful question. I guess um, you're right. When we think about cost-effectiveness analysis, you can do it from a uh, healthcare provider or healthcare systems perspective, and a lot of the ones that get done are from that perspective. There are ways to look at it from a societal perspective where you add in, so those are mostly what we would call direct costs. So the costs of you know the drugs, the um, care provided, hospitalization, et cetera. And then you can put in uh, indirect costs, which are you know out-of-pocket costs and, or, and also what's called opportunity costs. So what, um, like how much, what, Productivity is lost when people take off time to have uh, treatment, especially younger uh, younger people. I mean, I guess uh, I, I will admit we didn't uh, with these analyses and a lot that get done. We didn't really; uh, they don't really incorporate uh, patient out of pocket costs uh, into that. Uh, although work is ongoing uh, for some of that, uh, so I guess the conclusions or the the parts we comment on is. Um, you know, again, what, how much money a system is paying for for potential improvement or small improvement in in outcomes, uh, and it is tough because um, uh, realistically, a lot of uh, drug costs get driven by the U.S. market. You know, most companies make a lot yeah. of their money yeah. in the U.S., and then it affects. Um, it's, it often affects other jurisdictions. But I guess I, I do feel that it behooves all of us to think about. You know, when we do these these analyses, again, you are modeling 
what you predict the outcomes might hold out to be. And there are ways to be more conservative and ways to be more optimistic to your points about some sometimes when you see ones done by drug companies, they might take the more optimistic approach of saying, oh, we might see a 10% survival benefit, and then that shows up to be cost effective. But I don't think it helps any of us in doing that, because then it kind of encourages these ongoing really high drug costs um, for what might not, you know, when there when these drugs then end up being employed in the or deployed in the real world uh, we might not even get that pfs advantage in terms of how people use it um and so it's sort of paying a lot of money like cancer drugs are so much money these days for maybe not that much benefit so so we do think about it a little bit differently i guess in canada than the yeah, us it yeah, helps us yeah. negotiate prices and uh, and we are publicly paid paying a system, but I think even a system like the U.S., you know, might not be able to long term sustain uh, all these costs and these high yeah. costs of drugs. And Paula is one example, but CAR T is another, right? That is mm-hmm. a very expensive therapy that, yes, is improving outcomes, um, but uh, uh, but comes at a very at a very high cost. Just a couple of more questions, and I promise I'll let you go. But, but Abby, I'm curious, as, after you published the paper and as you were going through it, um, are there any public health uh, ramifications to your publications? Um, I, I thought the findings were provocative. Congratulations. They, they were great, and, and the paper is very interesting. I hope a lot of listeners read it. But do you get contacted by, I mean, could this affect, I guess, access to some of these therapies based on your findings from a public health perspective? Yeah, I think that's a, a very thoughtful question. And um, I think at the end of the day, um, and, and we state this in our paper is, you know, one publication is not necessarily seeking to make a recommendation to funders or to policymakers about what is appropriate in their region and in their context. Um, so I think at the end of the day, when when funders and and um, policymakers are thinking about implementing a therapy, you know, as as Dr. Preka said, um, it, the night the nice group and and our groups in um, in Canada tend to do their own cost effectiveness analyses because, of course, you want everyone to have really detailed. Um, understanding of the inputs in the model, because we know that the inputs are so important in terms of the the actual outcome. And so we want the people who are making these decisions to feel very confident about, you know, what inputs they're choosing into the model. So I think, while we believe our our model is very strong, and um, we feel that we thought very thoroughly about all of these things. um, I would hope that um, it doesn't affect access to drugs in jurisdictions, because I would hope that um, local providers, you know, think about these things in the right context for their region. I guess my last question is, why are your results different than the results of the blood paper um, that I read just a few weeks ago and I interviewed the authors? Um, I mean, there's pretty significant contrast. Um, So uh, I'd like to hear from both of you as to your thoughts into why you believe you reached different conclusions. And yeah, so we spoke about this a little bit in our discussion and um, and, and interestingly have met with the authors of, of the other paper and are interested in collaborating. So I think, you know, again, neither of us can say we know the absolute truth, but I think our two, the differences in our papers really illustrates the challenges with cost-effectiveness analyses and the importance of um, looking at the inputs and um, 
and and for each kind of person who's reading them to see if the inputs kind of match their expectations. Um, I think in terms of the main differences on reflection, you know, number one, of course, we included Canadian costs in addition to U.S. Um, number two, in terms of cost inputs, um, I believe we included from a U.S. perspective um, certain things such as um, you know, the costs of, you know, things that seem small, like the cost of grass to fill, which is required prophylaxis, costs about $6,000 per cycle in the U.S., um, and the cost of markup, which I think is maybe um, an under, um, under-recognized area in U.S., which is basically the costs that hospitals would charge on top of the drug costs or the listed costs to insurance providers, um, really as high as 400% in one analysis is what they charge above and beyond the drug price. Um, and that is what makes U.S. costs so um, different because the markup that you choose can really impact the costs. Um, and then number three, I think um, uh, thinking about things like qualities. So for example, I think we weighted uh, long-term remission um, a little bit lower than um, than the paper published in Blood, which weighted long-term remission qualities as 1.0, um, whereas, for example, studies of healthy U.S. adults age 65 show that their long-term quality is about 0.8. Um, so I think perhaps differences in weighting the impact of remission um, may also have led to the differences we noticed. Um, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Parika. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a combination of some factors that um, perhaps made the blood uh, or uh, our colleagues' analysis more optimistic. It's ours a little bit more pessimistic, including, mm -hmm. and sometimes all these things can bias towards, you know, being uh, towards the uh, experimental arm looking better than maybe uh, ours did. And I think the, the utilities was one for sure, where um, we don't really think if you look at the literature, it's very hard to find that there's a population of people that really have 100% health. Um, so being in remission and uh, having that uh, or modeling that kind of a 1.0 health, uh, again, would bias towards like if you're in more remissions because of polar hardship, then the qualities are going to be a little bit higher. Um, and then the other one that um, Abby didn't uh, highlight, maybe you left it for me, was that uh, they modeled, uh, we believe they modeled EFS from the polar hardship arm, and we modeled PFS, and I guess we could discuss uh, the differences, but I think we've generally felt um, that PFS is a purer kind of, you know, uh, endpoint that maybe doesn't put in as many of the biases around, you know, if you got radiation post-CAR-T therapy for what could have been a false positive PET scan, and then that patient does well, um, you know, is that is that a true um was that a, an event or not, which EFS counts, but PFS doesn't. So there was quite a difference. Like if you look at the, I think in Zuma 7, if I recall, the EFS was um, quite a bit um, yeah, yeah, uh, lower than PFS. So that impacts kind of what the long-term outcomes might be. So I think all those differences, again, ours was more a more conservative, perhaps, difference between the two. And when you're looking at such small, like we're talking about, right, a difference in qualities of like 0 0.4, 0 0.5. So, mm -hmm. so that kind of a small difference uh, can really impact the ICER. And to Abby's point, I think just highlights um, some of the challenges in evaluating this. But I again, I think... Uh, we try generally to be more conservative so that we're being fair to what is being evaluated so we have longer term data to help uh, inform these um, evaluations. 
Well, Doctor's Vision Thera and uh, Brika, thank you so much for joining me on the Hemang Pulse. This is great, and um, congratulations on on uh, your paper and your accomplishments. Look forward to having you again. Thanks for having us. So much.